Now, friends, as we come to the prophecy of Ezekiel, there are several introductory things that I'd like to say about Ezekiel that will orient us into this book and to the period in which Ezekiel lived. Ezekiel, first of all, he was a priest. And we are told that in verse 3, as we shall see here of the first chapter. But actually, he never served in that office. The reason was that he was taken captive during the reign of Jehoiachin. We're told that in 2 Kings 24, verses 10 through 16. I'll not take time to turn there, but you'll remember that Jehoiakim reigned, and he reigned 11 years, actually. He was king when the first deportation took place. And Daniel was taken at that time, and then Jehoiachin came to the throne, and he only reigned, no three months. And then it is about 597 B.C., and you have that second deportation. And during that one, why, Ezekiel was taken captive. Then Ezekiel was a contemporary of Jeremiah and of Daniel. Now, Jeremiah was an old man at this time, and he had been as a young man, you remember, with the young king Josiah, and he lived now a long time. And he had remained with the remnant in the land, and then he was taken by them down into Egypt. So his ministry at this time was confined to the remnant that had gone to Egypt and had taken him along. Now, Daniel was taken into the court of the king of Babylon and became his prime minister. He was sort of a Henry Kissinger, you see, in that day. Now, Ezekiel was with the captives who had been brought down to the rivers of Babylon. Actually, had been brought to that great canal that was off of the river Euphrates, and that's where the captives were placed. It was several miles from Babylon itself, and Ezekiel's ministry was with them. And I think it's quite interesting to note something here that I would like very much to enlarge upon just for a moment, and it's this. If you'd go back to Psalm 137, that's the psalm of the remnant that was down, that had been taken captive by the rivers of Babylon, We sat down, and we wept when we remembered Zion. And what about this man here? Well, this man has visions of God at that time. He says that the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. That's in verse 1 of chapter 1 of Ezekiel. While these people had already put their harp on the willow tree, and they were sitting down weeping, this man is seeing visions of God. What a contrast that you have here. And he is the prophet to the remnant. Now, I don't know this, but I would infer from the record that actually Daniel and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, all being prophets, but they had a particular and peculiar ministry to a certain people, and it never brought them into contact with each other. I've always wondered whether Daniel didn't go up and visit his people from the book of Daniel. You'd never gather that, and yet he had a great concern for them, and 
He actually defended them. But did Daniel and Jeremiah know each other? Well, we know from the book of Daniel that Daniel was acquainted with the prophecies of Jeremiah. And I have a notion, maybe as a young man, a young boy actually in his teens, that he probably listened to Jeremiah in Jerusalem. And probably Ezekiel had. But Ezekiel was a young man also when he was taken into captivity, about 30 years of age. Of course, they say 30 today, you're an old man. But nevertheless, that had been his experience. Now, if you want to contrast these three prophets, here is what you'd have. The message of Ezekiel is the most spiritual of all the prophets because he dealt with the person of God. Someone has put it like this. Ezekiel is the prophet of the Spirit. Isaiah is the prophet of the Son. And Jeremiah is the prophet of the Father. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, during the first years of the captivity, the false prophets were still saying that the people were going to return to Jerusalem and that the city would not be destroyed. You see, it was not destroyed at this second deportation. It was not until about 587 or 586. Nebuchadnezzar came the third time, and at that time he burnt and destroyed the city. So in this period of approximately, well, almost 10 years, why you find that these false prophets were saying that they would go back and Jerusalem would not be destroyed. Well, Jeremiah had sent a message to Babylon saying that the city would be destroyed, and Ezekiel confirmed this message. And he warned the people that they must turn to God before they could return to Jerusalem. And when the time came, a very small minority, a small remnant, did return to God, and they returned to Jerusalem, and very much discouraged. Now, Ezekiel began his ministry five years after his captivity. And at that time, he was approximately 30 years old. Now, in many ways, Ezekiel spoke in the darkest days of the nation. He stood at the bottom of the valley in the darkest corner. He had to meet the false hope given by the false prophets at first. Then he had to meet the indifference and despondency begotten in the days of sin and disaster. The people would not listen to him or to his message. Therefore, he resorted to a new method. Instead of speaking in parables, as the Lord Jesus did, he acted these parables out. And we're going to see that he did some very interesting stunts. In fact, the matter is, some things that... I would say intensely interesting. We're told, for instance, over in the 24th chapter, verse 24, "...thus Ezekiel is unto you a sign, according to all that he hath done, shall ye do. And when this cometh, ye shall know that I am the Lord God." In other words, they wouldn't listen to his words, so he had act them out. And he attracted a great deal of attention. We have folk that do that today. That's the reason these people march and carry placards today. They want to attract attention, especially of the TV stations, in order that they might get publicity. We've had 
in the past, flagpole setters and walkathons and all that type of thing to attract attention. Well, this was the method of Ezekiel. One of the things that he did, and it was quite interesting, he went into a house and locked himself in, and he started digging himself out. And he came up out in the middle of the street. Now, here in Pasadena, wouldn't be anything new to dig in the middle of the street because the city keeps all the streets dug up all the time anyway. But Ezekiel, in that day, here's a man that comes up out of the middle of the street one day when people naturally all gathered around and said, what's the big idea? He told them. He had the message for them. Now, we'll see that when we get to it. He's the prophet now of the glory of the Lord. There are three prophets of Israel, and they spoke when they were out of the land. Ezekiel is one of them. Daniel is... And John on the Isle of Patmos is the other. And all three of these men wrote what is called an apocalypse. Although they used highly symbolic language, they saw the brightest light, and they held the highest hope of all of the prophets. Ezekiel saw the Shekinah glory of the Lord leave Solomon's temple, and he saw the return of the glory of the Lord, which was projected into the future and will come to pass during the kingdom age, which is the millennium. Now, the meaning of Ezekiel is seen in the coming of the glory during the kingdom. In other words, Ezekiel looked beyond the sufferings of Christ to the glory that should follow. As Peter said that the prophets, they saw the sufferings and they saw the glory that would follow. And Ezekiel saw it better than any of the rest of them, by the way. Now, I think this will give you something of a background of this very, I think, interesting book that we're coming to. And we're probably going to handle this a little bit differently than we've handled other books. And the reason is, is because of the nature and the characteristics of the content of the book, because we're going to deal with things that are really something. Now, the book opens with a display of the glory here in chapter 1. And probably I should give you here at the very beginning our overall outline of the book. And I've actually got it in our notes, outlined chapter by chapter. But the major divisions we have here in the first seven chapters, the glory of the Lord and the commission of the prophet. Then from chapter 8 through 24, we have the glory of the Lord, the complete captivity of Jerusalem and Israel, and the departure of the glory. Then, from chapters 25 through 32, we have the glory of the Lord and the judgment of the nations. And then finally, from chapters 33 through 48, we have the glory of the Lord and the coming kingdom. Now, those are the major divisions. Now, here in this section of the glory of the Lord and the commission of the prophet, we have here in chapter 1 the display of the glory. Now, this is a very difficult vision. John Calvin said this concerning it. He said, If anyone asks whether the vision is lucid, I confess its obscurity, and that I can scarcely understand it. Well, I want to concur with that statement 
And I want to say that I'm a true Calvinist concerning the first vision that we have in Ezekiel. Calvin said he couldn't understand it clearly, and I want to go along with him and say that I can't understand it clearly. But I want to say this to you, that I'm sure of what it is not. Now, first of all, this is the vision of the wheels within wheels. This is not a vision of this mechanical age. And, my friend, it's not a prophecy of the aeroplane. You remember when we had the old propeller planes that there were several prophetic teachers saying, oh, my, this vision is a prophecy of the airplane. And now today we've got jet planes. And what are you going to do with that? Because there are no wheels within wheels there. Now, to say that, you couldn't have anything as puerile and as juvenile as to say that. That brings prophecy into disrepute. It's silly and senile chatter like this that has brought prophecy into disrepute. Actually, you have here a vision of the glory. Now, in Isaiah, you have the principles of the throne of God. And in Jeremiah, you have the practice of that throne. But in Ezekiel, you have the person that's on the throne. And that's the vision here. But I want to hasten to say this. God is not exposed here. You don't have a window display of him. And I'm going to venture an interpretation. You have here a vision of the chariot of God. Now, when I began my ministry, and I have these notes right here before me now, way back in, I go back to... 19, I think this message was given about 1935. And my subject at that time was a vision of God. (laughs) Well, it's not that. It's a vision of the glory of God. Now, that is a difference, maybe without too great a distinction. But it's important to make that, by the way. And what I see in this now is a vision of the chariot of God. And God rides triumphantly in his own chariot today. And what you see here is the God of glory moving irresistibly through time, if you please. There was one feature which I discovered that shocked me. The chariot here is vacant. I took it for granted that God was there. There are four living creatures, the chariot beam, and they're connected with the chariot, yet they're distinct from it. And above all, there is a throne, and on the throne there's a man, and this is the highest vision of God. And that makes it the most difficult to understand. There are certain outward aspects, though, that are very impressive facts. Now, I'm going to just call attention to that, and therefore let me begin reading now here at verse 1. Now it came to pass in the thirtieth year, in the fourth month, in the fifth day of the month, as I was among the captives by the river of Kibar, that the heavens were opened, 
and I saw visions of God. Now, we must remember this is a vision, and a vision of God, but you don't see God. We need to make that distinction because it's very important to make. The question of the 30th year here would seem to indicate that this man was 30 years of age, but it's the belief, I think, of most scholarship today that this is geared to a little different calendar, and it's geared to the calendar of that day. And I'm not going into details concerning that because, very frankly, it becomes just a little intricate, and I frankly don't think it's essential today. Scholarship would spend a great deal of time there, and that's all right. And so I'm going to let them spend the time, and we won't. Now, in the fifth day of the month, which was the fifth year of King Jehoiachin's captivity. So you see that we have not quite come to the destruction of Jerusalem that took place during the reign of Zedekiah. That is important to see. He said, Now the word of the Lord came expressly unto Ezekiel the priest. Now you see, he belonged to the tribe of Levi and apparently to the priestly tribe, probably at least to the sons of Kohath. And we are told here that he was the son of Buzzai in the land of the Chaldeans by the river Kebar, and the hand of the Lord was there upon him. And Kebar, by the way, was that main canal that came off of the Euphrates River, which watered that area. And apparently these people were put there to till the land, and it's removed quite a few miles from Babylon. And I would say that probably is the reason that Daniel and this man Ezekiel didn't probably meet together for maybe a meal together. It may be that Daniel did visit there. I don't think Ezekiel would have been permitted to have visited Daniel. Now, will you notice, also he says here, "...and I looked, and behold, a whirlwind came out of the north." Now, I know there are a great many people who make a great deal of the north and that there's a vacant spot up there and all that sort of thing. That actually is not true because today with these radio electronic telescopes that they have, these big dishes, one out here on the Mojave Desert, they know that there are stars out there. But actually, that was the direction that they thought led to the presence of God. They thought that, well, our viewpoint today is actually more hazy than that. Instead of looking up toward the north, we just look up and think that that's heaven. Well, it's all right for us creatures, we are earthlings, to look at it like that. But I don't think you can make too much out of this as some have made out of it. Now he says, I looked and behold, a whirlwind came out of the north. And I would say the interpretation is that this is a tremendous movement from the throne of God. There was a great cloud and a fire enfolding itself, and a brightness was about it, and out of the midst of it, like the color of amber, out of the midst of the fire. Now, here is something that I think is very important for us to see. And I want to deal with this more or less in detail. It says here, out of the north. Now, the idea that there's a great vacant space yonder in the north, and it 
leads directly to the throne of God. That is a sort of a freeway. I think you can forget that. But the north points to the throne of God. And we have that, for instance, in Isaiah 14, 13. He says, speaking now here of the fall of Satan, when he was the angel of the morning, I read here Isaiah 14, 13 now, "...for thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven, I'll exalt my throne above the stars of God, I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north." And I believe that instead of just pointing toward the North Pole, I think that if you look up, and I think that's what it means. God's throne is out yonder. I think actually not even relative to a direction. But after all, how would you and I understand it? And I mean, I think for us, it would be, look up, your redemption draweth nigh. And for us, it's just to look up. And that's the direction of the throne of God for you and me today. Now, will you note also that there is another scripture in this connection, and that's Psalm 75, 6 and 7. And that, by the way, is quite interesting in this connection. And I'll read these two verses. Lift not up your horn on high, speak not with a stiff neck, for promotion cometh neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south. Well, where does it come from? But God is the judge. He put it down one and set it up another. The only direction left is north. And I would say again, the thought is it's up, that the throne of God is out yonder, and I think even beyond space. That is, if you can go beyond it, I'm not sure you can. Now he speaks here, a whirlwind came out of the north. Now, that's a judgment from God. And then we're told here something else. It was like a fire enfolding itself, and a brightness was about it, and out of the midst of it, like the color of amber, out of the midst of the fire. Now, that's the first thing, the light flashing forth, revealing and also concealing, obscuring and yet bringing out where it can be seen. Brighter than the sun, I would say the inside of an atom bomb would be a good comparison to be made. Incandescent, like lightning. Now, the Word of God says that our God is a consuming fire, and God is light. And you will remember that Paul said, I saw a light above the brightness of the sun. And it speaks of the unapproachable presence of God. Now, notice in this connection, and I drop down now to verses 13 and 14. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, and like the appearance of lamps. It went up and down among the living creatures, and the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning." And the living creatures ran and returned like the appearance of a flash of lightning. So we have here now this tremendous vision. And we're told God is light. And this is a vision 
actually of the glory of God, not of the person of God. And you remember the Lord Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. Now, what does it reveal? It reveals the holiness and the righteousness of God. We walk in the light as he is in the light. We have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, just keeps on cleansing us from all sin. You and I would be scorched by the holiness of God if we had not been redeemed by the blood of Christ and covered with the righteousness of Christ. Now we come to something else that I think that is quite interesting here. And I probably should mention it in connection with the light. And I'd like to emphasize this. God is not exposed here. He's portrayed. And it still can be said that no man has seen God at any time. And Moses, you remember, said, "'Show me thy glory.'" God hid him in the cleft of the rock, and Moses only saw the glory of God. He didn't see him. God made the statement definitely, "'Thou canst not see my face.'" For there shall no man see me and live. Man is forbidden today to make a likeness of God. We do not know how he looked. We don't even know how the Lord Jesus looked who became a man. Now, there is in the human heart a longing to see God. I think every idol witnesses to that. It's perverted and profane, but men want to see God. And today the pictures of Jesus that you find. And those pictures are pagan and profitless. But you remember Philip said, "'Show us the Father, and it sufficeth us.'" So that you have here that which is prophetic of the incarnation. Now let me read, therefore, beginning at verse 5. "'Also out of the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures.'" And this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man. And every one had four faces, and every one had four wings. And their feet were straight feet, and so on. And down verse 8, they had the hands of a man under their wings on their four sides, and they four had their faces and their wings. Now, verse 10, as for the likeness of their faces... They four had the face of a man, the face of a lion on the right side, and they four had the face of an ox on the left side, and they four also had the face of an eagle. And then let me drop all the way down to verse 26. And above the firmament that was over their heads was the likeness of a throne, like the appearance of a sapphire stone. And upon the likeness of the throne was the likeness of the appearance of a man above upon it. Now, this speaks of the incarnation of Christ, the fact that God became a man, the Word became flesh, and pitched his tent here among us. What a picture that we have here. We are told how beautiful Isaiah said this. In Isaiah 52, 7, "...how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him." that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. He came to this earth, a man, walked the dusty trails of Palestine. And finally, spikes were driven into those feet. 
Now, we're told also here that he had the face of an ox. That speaks of the gospel of Mark. And there you see the servant character of our Lord. And he died as one. He came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. And there are other features here of this vision as we see, as we move into it. Now you have the glory of God. His presence is here, but you can't see him. And again, we have to say it. No man has seen God at any time. Ruskin put it like this. The greatest thing a human soul ever does in this world is to see something and tell what it was that he saw in plain language. Well, Ezekiel saw more than Moses saw. He saw more than David saw and more than Daniel saw, more than Isaiah saw. He saw a vision of the glory of God. The presence of God was there, but you don't see his person, the glory. And you see, when the Lord Jesus came to this earth and took upon himself our humanity, the glory was not there. But now you're looking upon a man. And there is, as we've said in that human heart, the desire to want to see God. Now, this vision of the cherub beings, they're four living creatures. They were there at the Garden of Eden. They guard the way of the tree of life. And that doesn't mean they were shutting man out from God. They were keeping the way open. And what did Adam and Eve see when they looked back? Well, I'll tell you what they saw. They saw a slain animal. They were wearing the skins. And they saw the cherubim overshadowing, keeping the way open to God, because it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the sin of man. And there above the mercy seat, when Moses made the mercy seat, there were cherubim, and they looked down upon the blood. Same thing Adam and Eve had seen. And that's the only way that man can approach God. No man comes to the Father but by me. Now, will you notice something else here? And I'm just lifting out these different things that are mentioned here. And one of the wheels... Now, let me read verses 15 and 16. Now, as I beheld the living creatures, behold, one wheel upon the earth by the living creatures with its four faces. The appearance of the wheels and their work was like the color of a burl, and they four had one likeness. Their appearance and their work was as it were a wheel in the middle of a wheel. Now, what do we have here? This is not a prophecy of the mechanical age that we live in or the invention of the wheel. I'm sure that man in the beginning, he felled a tree and cut off a part of the trunk, and he found out he had a wheelbarrow. Then he put two wheels on it and had a cart. And then he put four wheels on it and he had a Ford automobile. Well, if that's the way you're looking at this, then may I say to you that's silly and senile. That's garbage and rubbish. What we are seeing here in these wheels, and I want to read verse 20 in this connection, wherever the Spirit was to go, they went. That is, the wheels. There was their Spirit to go, and the wheels were lifted up beside them, for the Spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Now, what does that mean? That means that here you see the ceaseless activity and energy of God 
that our God is omnipotent. The Lord Jesus said, "...all power is given unto me." And it speaks of the fact, if you'll note here, verse 12, "...and they went everyone straight forward." Wherever the Spirit was to go, they went, and they turned not when they went. In other words, God is moving forward undeviatingly, unhesitatingly, to the accomplishment of His purpose in this world today, and nothing will deter Him. Nothing can sidetrack Him at all. Now, in verse 18, we have mentioned to us here, "...and as for their rims," that is, of the wheels, they were so high that they were dreadful, and their rims were full of eyes round about them four. And what does that mean? That means that you have an intelligent purpose. You and I are not living in a universe that is moving into the future aimlessly and purposelessly. God has a purpose for every atom that he's created, and he has a purpose for you, my friend, in his plan and program. The very fact that you happen to be around today, and you and I are here to accomplish a purpose of God. And here you see God riding triumphantly in his own chariot. Here is a vision of a God who's intelligent and carrying out his purpose in the world today. Now, these four living creatures that we have read about here, we see them again in Revelation 4. And there you see them again guarding the throne of God. And I believe that they do two things. They protect the throne of God in the sense that they do not permit man to come into the presence of God in his sin, but they indicate the way man has come. The way of the cross leads home. There's no other way, but the way of the cross leads home. And the cherubim, they speak of that. Now, I think Ezekiel saw something infinitely greater. He saw the cherubim over the world, extending mercy today to this little piece of dirt that's flying through space on which man, as someone has said, is nothing in the world but a rash on the epidermis of a second-rate planet. Well, may I say to you, God made the whole world today a mercy seat when Christ died down here, and God, hovering over the world, will receive any sinner that will come his way to him. What a picture you have of God here. Now, take a final look at this vision that we have here. I'll tell you what I see. I see an amber throne in the azure blue, a sapphire-studded throne flashing like a diamond, colored like a rainbow, and the light blinds, it obscures, it flashes, and the throne is filled with energy, like a missile on launching. It's moving, a chariot, and it's not leaving the earth, it's coming to earth. And it ought to cause you and me, as it did Ezekiel, Oh, God, I'm undone. I'm lost. I need you. I turn to you. I accept you. Cherubim over the world. I see a cross. I see a lamb. I see the blood. I see a mercy seat. There's mercy with the Lord today. Come every soul by sin oppressed. Mercy with the Lord. And Paul says that in Romans 9:15, "...for he saith to Moses..." 
I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And that's our God today. If you come and the soul that sinneth it shall die. And God is saying, oh, why will ye die? Not only, O house of Israel, but he's saying it today to a lost world. You can come. What a picture you have here of a holy God. And I must say, I merely stand on the fringe, thankful I'm hidden in the cleft of the rock today. And someday, I'm going to look upon the face of my Savior. I don't know how he looked, but I'm looking forward to that. Now, friends, today our study brings us to the second chapter of Ezekiel. We just got started there in this book, and we are through that first chapter with that glorious vision. And we'll be returning to it because that vision is probably the high water mark in the Word of God. I believe that all the visions in Scripture rests upon that vision. I do know this, that that vision forms the basis of every vision in Ezekiel, and that a great deal of the book of Revelation does not rest primarily on Daniel and actually on the Olivet Discourse of our Lord. Yet the book of Revelation needs to be considered with the Olivet Discourse and the book of Daniel. But that which is really foundational is the book of Ezekiel, the apocalypse here of Ezekiel. And this great vision, which we'll return to from time to time, and we just actually stand on the fringe of things, and we cannot penetrate. Why? Because you're dealing with the infinite God. And friends, all we can do is stand there and worship and praise his name. Now, this vision had a tremendous effect upon Ezekiel. As we found out, it was the Old Testament custom when men got into the presence of God. They went down on their faces. That was true of Isaiah, you remember that he says, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And he said he had unclean lips. And this man found himself horizontal with the ground. He was not perpendicular with it. And he could say, I'm undone. And that was the position Daniel took also. And it was a position John took on the Isle of Patmos. John says, I fell at his feet as dead. And so we open chapter 2 with verse 1. It reads like this. He said unto me, Son of man, stand upon thy feet, and I'll speak unto thee. Apparently he wasn't standing up. He was down on his face. Now he receives a call and commission here and endowment with power for the office that God has called him to. And you notice the way that God addresses him, son of man. That's interesting because this is a title that is found exactly 100 times here in Ezekiel. And you find also Daniel is called the son of man. The only two in the Old Testament that were called that. And this is the title that the Lord Jesus appropriated to himself. Eighty-six times in the New Testament, we find him using this title for himself. Now, 
it speaks of him in his rejection, his humiliation, and also his exaltation. And so you have his suffering and his humiliation, his exaltation, and the glory of him and his second coming. He's the Son of Man. And I think Ezekiel passed through a great deal of suffering. If you would ask me, whose position would you rather have? Or let me turn it around. Which position would you rather not have of Daniel, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel? And I would say Ezekiel. Now, Daniel was in danger, it's true, in the court. And if you doubt that, ask the lions down there in the den, because this man Daniel spent a night with them, and if God hadn't intervened, why, this man Daniel would have been lying food. But he survived it, but he was in danger down there in a foreign court. But I'd much prefer his job. At least he had luxury quarters, and he stayed in the best motel that there was in Babylon. That was the palace of the king. And Jeremiah, at this time, is pretty much retired, and he's up with the remnant. Now, he was in grave danger during his active ministry until the deportation of the people in captivity. But now this man, Ezekiel, is sent to do a hard job. And I mean a difficult job, friends. He had the job of speaking to an apostate people to those that were in rebellion against God, to those that thought they were God's people. And, frankly, the Spirit of God now comes upon him here and prepares him for this office. I'm now reading verse 2. And the Spirit entered into me when he spoke unto me and set me upon my feet that I heard him who spoke unto me. The Spirit of God now endues him with power for the office. Now, I believe that when God calls you to do a job, he'll give you the power to do that job. In fact, I think God's work can only be done with the power of God. That ought to be self-evident. If God has called you to do a certain thing, he'll give you the power to do it. And if you recognize you can't do it, that's the best position you can come to. Moses, you remember finally came to the position after 40 years in the wilderness, he couldn't deliver the people. Now, God says, I can do it through you. And God called him to do it. And he was able to do it, not because there was anything in Moses, but because there was a great deal in God. And I think that today is so practical that it works in the ministry, it works in the pew, it works in the mission field today. I remember a young couple They came to me. They were called to go to the mission field, they said. I'll be very frank with you. I questioned them, and I was criticized because I very frankly felt that they were not called, but I didn't know it, and I certainly wasn't going to stand in the way. And they went to the mission field. They came back a casualty. Well, it was tragic. And when I talked with them, they came into council, and so... I was talking with them. They were bitter. Now, God had let them down. They were willing to go to the mission field, willing to be martyrs, and yet God wouldn't use them. And I said, had it ever occurred to you that if you'd been called to the mission field, he'd have given you the power to do the job? 
Well, they had never thought of it from that viewpoint. My friend, we need to recognize that and make sure if we're called to God that he's going to give us the power to do it. Then, therefore, the important thing is to make sure that we're called to God to do the thing. And so this man is called to God. I'll be honest with you. He was called to the hardest task any man that I can think of is this man Ezekiel. Now, will you notice, God's going to tell him about his job. And I'm of the opinion, if he told me this, when I entered the ministry, I'd have said, well, now, wait a minute, Lord, you already have my resignation. I think I'm going to continue on being a bank clerk and try to work myself up there. Well, I'm glad he didn't tell me, because I must confess I'm a coward, and I come from a long line of cowards. But this man, Ezekiel, I admire him. Will you notice what God said to him? He said unto me, Son of man, I send thee to the children of Israel, to a rebellious nation that hath rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me even unto this day. They are impudent children and stiff-hearted. I do send thee unto them, and thou shalt say unto them, Thus saith the Lord." Now, this is tremendous. God says to this man, he says, now I'm going to send you to these people, and they are a rebellious nation. That is the most tremendous statement that you find here. Now, the word rebellious here, that occurs again and again in this book. These people were in rebellion against God, and they are called a nation. Now, the word for nation is not the word God generally used for them, his chosen people. The word here is goyim, and that's the word that Israel used for the Gentile, for the pagan, the heathen, if you please. Now what has happened? The nation Israel has sunk down to the level of the heathen that are round about them. And God says they are a rebellious nation, and they've rebelled against me, and they're impudent children. And friends, the hardest people in the world to reach today with the gospel are church members. Those that are in the church that are actually in rebellion against God, they have rejected the gospel. They've actually rejected the word of God. And there are many in the church like that. And they think Christianity is being nice little girls and boys. You know, they play at church. It's a nice game. They want to be nice and sweet and keep their nose clean. And they want to live a life on the surface that is a very sedate and comfortable life. And they just don't want someone coming in and telling them they're lost sinners and they need to be saved and become obedient unto God. They're hard people to reach. Now, some of us have had a ministry that's been in today the modern church. And very candidly, I'm delighted I'm a retired preacher right now. And my heart goes out to my brethren today in the ministry. Some of them are really are sitting in a, in a hot seat. And unless my young friend, you're definite about your call, if I was you, I'd sell insurance or maybe try to do something else today rather than enter the ministry because it's not easy. That is, if you're going to stand for the Word of God. Now, will you notice? Here is what God says to him. Verse 5, And they, whether they will hear 
or whether they will forbear, for they are a rebellious house, yet shall know that there hath been a prophet among them. And Ezekiel, I'm calling you to go to them, and whether they hear you or whether they don't, they're going to know after your ministry there was a prophet of God among them, because I'm going to make that sure. And I think God does that today. To be very frank with you, I just want it said after I've gone, well, this boy, the best he could, he preached the Word of God. That's the important thing. He says, I just want you to be sure that when you're gone, they'll be able to say, well, he was a prophet of God. There's no question about that, though we disagreed with him. Now, he says to this man, thou son of man, be not afraid of them. Apparently, he was in danger. Neither be afraid of their words, though briars and thorns be with thee, and thou dost dwell among scorpions. Be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, though they are a rebellious house. My, the Lord lays it on the line. Now, I'm going to move on down to the third chapter, because in the third chapter here, you have the preparation of the prophet now for a hard job, a difficult assignment. Now, Jeremiah was a different type individual. Jeremiah, the prophet of the broken heart, with the tears streaming down his eyes. God needed that man to let his people know at that crucial moment that it was breaking his heart to send them into captivity. But now they've gone into captivity, and they are bitter. They are rebellious. In fact, the matter is, at this time, the temple in Jerusalem was not burned. The city was not destroyed. It wasn't until seven years after this delegation got there. And the false prophets were still telling them, you're going to go home, you're God's people. And they said to this man, Ezekiel, who you think you are to tell us? We're God's people. We're going back. We're not going to be in captivity a long time. And Ezekiel, God says, you'd tell them they're not going back. They're going to be in captivity a long time, 70 years. Jeremiah was accurate. You're going to be there 70 years, and it's going to be hard working there on the canals. Those people, I think, worked in the fields. I think they built buildings. It was a hard lot. Now, he says in chapter 3, verse 1, Moreover, he said unto me, Son of man, see the title he gives him, in his hard job, in his suffering, Eat what thou findest. Eat this scroll and go speak unto the house of Israel. Now, that's quite a diet, but he's to eat the Word of God. That is, the Word of God should become part of us, friend. No man ought to preach today if his heart is not in it. And he doesn't believe every word he says. And if he doesn't, he ought to get out of the ministry. The pulpit is no place for flowery speech and high-flown verbiage, and excess verbiage at that. The pulpit is the place to declare the Word of God. Now, he says to him, you eat the Word of God. And so, I open my mouth, Ezekiel says, and he caused me to eat that scroll. That's verse 2. Now I'm reading verse 3. And he said unto me, Son of man, eat and fill thy stomach. Get a good diet. Study the Word of God. And fill thy stomach with this scroll that I give thee. Then did I eat it, and it was in my mouth like honey for sweetening. May I say to you, we've asked the question time and again, 
Do you love the person of Christ? Maybe I ought to go back to that. Do you love the Word of God? You'd never love Him unless you love the Word of God. And my feeling today, it's not really the attitude toward the book when you get it down to the final analysis. One seminary professor said to me some time ago, he says, what theory of inspiration do you hold? Well, I said to him, the theory I hold is no theory at all. I love the book. You have to love the Word of God before it'll ever become meaningful to you. Then the Word of God reveals a person, and then you fall in love with him. Ezekiel said, I love the Word, but he sure got a hard job. Now he said unto me, Son of man, go, get thee unto the house of Israel. Speak with my words unto them, for thou art not sent to a people of a strange speech. You're not sent to foreigners, your own people. You speak their language. You don't have to go as a missionary and learn a foreign tongue and a hard language, but to the house of Israel. Not to many people of a strange speech and of a hard language, whose words thou canst not understand. Surely had I sent thee to them, they would have hearkened unto thee. Now, he's not like Paul the apostle, sent as a missionary to foreign people. Now he says, but the house of Israel will not hearken unto thee. This is verse 7. Oh, follow this carefully. You have your Bible. But the house of Israel will not hearken unto thee, for they will not hearken unto me. For all the house of Israel are impudent, hard-hearted. Behold, I have made thy face strong against their faces, and thy forehead strong against their foreheads. Like an adamant, harder than flint, have I made thy forehead. Fear them not, neither be dismayed at their looks, though they are a rebellious house. Now he says to this man Ezekiel, Ezekiel, I'm going to send you to a congregation that they're impudent, they're in rebellion against me, they won't hear me, they're not going to hear you either. But you're to give them my word. But I'm going to make your head hard. Now, he didn't do that, this man Jeremiah. Jeremiah had a soft heart. And he couldn't stand up against it. You remember, he went and resigned at one time. Believe me, Ezekiel's not about to resign. God says, I'm going to make your head hard. The children of Israel are hard-headed, and I'll make your head harder than they are. And man came to me, he says, you know, our preacher, I tell you, he really talked to the board the other night. And I don't think a preacher ought to talk that way to the board. Well, I said, what kind of board was it? Well, he says they've caused him a lot of trouble. Well, I said, that's the kind of problem that Ezekiel had. But I said, God made his head harder. And I just hope your preacher's head's going to be harder than anybody on the board. May I say to you, friends, this man's got a tough assignment. Now he's going to tell him what he's to do. Verse 15, Then I came to them of the captivity of Tel Abid, that dwelt by the river of Kibar, and I sat where they sat, and remained there, overwhelmed among them seven days. And it came to pass at the end of seven days that the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, I've made thee a watchman under the house of Israel, Therefore, hear the word of my mouth, and give them warning from me. When I say unto the wicked, Thou shalt surely die, and thou givest him not warning, nor speakest to warn the wicked from his wicked way, 
to save his life, the same wicked man shall die in his iniquity. But his blood will I require at thine hand. But if thou warn the wicked, and he turns not from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but thou hast delivered thy soul. Now he's to be made a watchman, and that is a tremendous job. We're going to have occasion to refer to that again, and I want to say something about the watchman. But the important thing for us to note here is, this man is to be a watchman to warn God's people. And they may not want it, but he's to warn them. And God says, I'll hold you responsible. If you don't warn them, they're going to die in their sin, and I'm going to hold you responsible. Now, if you warn them and they go ahead, they'll die in their sin, but you won't be responsible. You know, my friend, a man today that's a minister who does not give out the Word of God in this hour, I'd hate to be in his position and stand before the Lord Jesus someday in judgment. I believe that will probably be the most frightful judgment of all. A man who have had the Word of God and then not have, well, let me use the refined term, the intestinal fortitude to declare the Word of God. That was the responsibility of this man. And God chose the right man, Ezekiel, for the job. He is as hard as a hickory nut, let me tell you. Now, a watchman was a very important position in the ancient world. And today, I would say they're pretty much gone out of style in many places. At least they function a little differently today. The ancient watchman takes us back to the day of walled cities. And the cities were walled for protection. Wall was put around them. And the gates were closed at dark. And then a watchman ascended the walls to begin the vigil of the long, dark night. And with a trained eye, he peered into the impenetrable darkness which surrounded the city. And with a trained ear alert to every noise coming from the outside, he listened for the approach of danger. And as he looked and listened for the approach of an enemy, he waited there on top. And the Word of God has quite a bit to say about the watchman. Over in Isaiah 62, 6, I read, I have set watchmen upon thy walls, O Jerusalem, which shall never hold their peace day or night. And then again in Psalm 127, 1, Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. And in the Hebrew period, the watchman function in three watches of the night. That is, they had three ships, dark until about midnight, and then from midnight till cockcrow, which was probably two or three o'clock, and then from then till dawn. The watchman in the morning announced the dawn. Now, the Romans, they had four watches during the night. Now, the practice of having watchmen that belongs to a backward age and a day that is past. At the dawn of civilization, it was satisfactory, but it's not needed today, but wait just a minute. We are finding out again that we need watchmen 
and the police patrolling all during the night in our cities today, a watchman. And I personally think they need a little bit more support by the citizen and by the legal profession should stand back of the policemen. Sure, some of them are not what they should be, but it's not the individual. It's the office that they occupy and the very fact that they do protect us during the night. But if our present day continues to become lawless, believe me, they're not going to be able to help us at all. But as we said before, when we were back in Isaiah, the watchman has a responsibility and also a visibility. He is to be able to distinguish the enemy out in the darkness. And therefore, the watchman is the minister. He should give a warning of the danger. And there is that type of a message to be given today. And he has that responsibility, and we've seen that. Now, he says something after that here that is quite interesting. He says in verse 20, this is verse 20 now of chapter 3, "...again, when a righteous man doth turn from his righteousness, commits iniquity, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die." Because thou hast not given him warning, he shall die in his sin, and his righteousness which he hath done shall not be remembered, but his blood will I require at thine hand. Now, this has been a verse that has been used to show you can fall from grace, which, by the way, is not taught in the Word of God. The only time it's even mentioned is in Galatians, and it hasn't anything to do with salvation but it's those saved by the grace of God falling down to a legal level and attempting to live by law instead of living by grace. Saved by grace, live by grace is the great teaching, as we've seen before, of Galatians. Now, what you have here is a man living under the time of law, and his life was determined by righteous acts, and therefore the righteous acts that he might give under normal circumstances might look very good. But here under stress and strain, why, the man might absolutely turn from God, and therefore he is to be judged. That is in no way to construe that he was ever saved, because his life is to be tested at the end of his life, whether he's a child of God or not. But Today, you and I are living under grace, and righteousness is just a little different for the child of God. We are constituted righteous today by faith in Jesus Christ. We're saved by grace through faith, and we're told in Romans 4, 4, Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned as of grace, but as of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him who justifieth the ungodly, His faith is reckoned or counted for righteousness. Now, the true believer today may fall into sin, but he will not deliberate practice and live in sin. For he that's born of God doth not practice sin. Now, if he falls in sin, a gracious provision is made. We have an advocate with the Father. We can come in confession of our sins. Now, you're talking here about a man under law. And the emphasis is not so much on that as it is upon the responsibility of the watchman. He is to warn that man 
that has turned from good works to living now in a way that conforms to the standard of the enemy. Now, this man, having delivered this message, been told that he is to be a watchman, he is now told in verse 22, Arise, go forth into the plain, and I will there talk with thee. Now, he's to leave these people. You see, for seven days he was overwhelmed as he sat among them and saw how far they had apostatized and had turned from God. Now he's called to leave them. And we find here in verse 23 then, Then I arose and went forth into the plain, and behold, the glory of the Lord stood there, like the glory which I saw by the river of Kibar. And I fell on my face. Now this matter of the glory of God will appear again and again in this book. What is glory, by the way? Several years ago, I got interested in that. What is glory? Well, somebody's going to say it's something you can't see, that it's intangible. Well, you're entirely wrong about that. Glory is something that produces a sensation on the five senses that we have, and it's something you can see, therefore. Now, glory has size. How big is glory? Is it long or square or round? How is it? Well, may I say to you, it has size, and the size of it's the infinity of space. Will you listen again to the Word of God, the heavens Declare the glory of God. The glory of God is seen in this tremendous universe that you and I live in. Now, glory has a beauty to it. We're told in Scripture, whose glorious beauty is a fading flower. Glory is beautiful. My heaven's going to be a beautiful place. How lovely it's going to be. And then it has to do with adornment. We read in Scripture, glorious in his apparel. That was in the Song of Solomon, glorious in his apparel. That is, he's really dressed up, lovely in the dress and the garb that is worn. That speaks of glory. And then there's a majesty about glory. O Lord our God, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens. It's the majesty of God. And it's bright and light, by the way. And it's precious and pure. You remember Daniel said something about, Give thee a kingdom and power and strength and glory. And then it also sets forth honor and dignity. The very name of God suggests that, a dignity. That has to do with glory, by the way. Now he sees the glory of the Lord. And he is told, verse 24, Then the Spirit entered into me, set me upon my feet, spoke with me, and said unto me, Go shut thyself within thine house. But thou, O son of man, behold, they shall put cords upon thee, and shall bind thee with them, and thou shalt not go out among them. The average interpretation of that that I've heard is that they bind them in order that they could take him out of the house, the enemy. But actually, that is what the enemy wanted to do. But he wanted to stay in the house, and therefore he would not go out, though they bound him. 
And he says, I'll make thy tongue cling to the roof of thy mouth, that thou shalt be dumb, and thou shalt be to them a reprover, for they are a rebellious house. Now, instead of speaking a great deal, he's going to act out the parables that God gives him. And this, by the way, is one of them. Goes into his house, locks himself in. Why? To show that God has rejected this rebellious people. Verse 27, Now God says, But when I speak unto thee, I will open thy mouth, and thou shalt say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, He that heareth, let him hear, and he that forbeareth, let him forbear, for they are a rebellious house. Now, the thing that he's to say is this, Thus saith the Lord God. And way back yonder in chapter 2, verse 7, Thou shalt speak my words unto them. This man is to give God's word to these people. And that's the only time that he's to speak unto them. He's dumb at other times. He only had the word of God to give to them. Now in chapter 4, we have here a very interesting chapter. He's going to use certain signs. He's going to act out certain parables. And at this time, Jerusalem was not destroyed. And the false prophets were telling the people, you're going to have peace. You are going to have it nice, and you're going to return shortly. Now, Ezekiel's going to confirm the word of Jeremiah. You're not going back. Though Jerusalem is standing, it's going to be destroyed. And someone has said that, well, it was G.K. Chesterton. He says, this is the age of pacifism, but it's not the age of peace. Through our history, man is engaged in 15,000 wars, and he has signed some 8,000 peace treaties. Yet he's never enjoyed during over 5,000, about 6,000 years of history, He's only enjoyed two to three hundred years of true peace. May I say to you, man is a warlike creature, whether he likes it or not. And you remember, Paul wrote the words of the Lord, When they shall say, Peace, peace, then sudden destruction coming upon him. May I say to you, there's only one prince of peace. Now, all that he's doing now is showing these people that Jerusalem is to be destroyed. Now, will you notice what he does here? He picks up now, chapter 4, verse 1, Thou also, son of man, take thee a tile, lay it before thee, and portray upon it the city, even Jerusalem. Now, the tile in that day means a brick. And this was the writing material. You will remember the Babylonians. They used clay bricks to keep their records. Now, Ezekiel is to take one of these bricks. They were about almost square, about 14 by 12 inches. Many of them have been found today. In fact, they've found wagon loads of them, and they have writing on them. Now, the thing that Ezekiel was to do, he was to draw the city of Jerusalem. I don't know just how he did it. And then he was to break this, you see, and show that the city was going to be destroyed. Then he was to take an iron pan here that he was to use also. And in this iron pan, he was to put it between him and this picture of Jerusalem, showing that God 
had put a wall between himself and the city of Jerusalem, that it was inevitable now, that it could not be stopped. Jerusalem is to be destroyed. What a message that you have here. And I think it's quite a tremendous message. Now, the siege of Jerusalem was portrayed in the tile sign. And then the hardships of divine judgment are in the second one of the pan there, that the people are going through terrible sufferings. And then the third sign describes additional punishments to come upon Jerusalem. And here you have the statement of the defiled bread in verse 9. Take also unto thee wheat and barley and beans and lentils and millet and pelt, and put them in one vessel. Make bread of it. Well, this man, Ezekiel, was a priest. And he said, well, I've never eaten anything unclean like that. God says, you better go ahead and eat it. It speaks of the famine that was coming to this city at the destruction of it. And yet the false prophets were saying, you're not going to be destroyed. You're going to return back to this city. But the people in it were to be destroyed. Well, will you notice this reveals the horrors that was coming upon Jerusalem. Then you have in chapter 5 here another sign. And this man acts it out. And thou, son of man, take a sharp knife like a barber's razor, cause it to pass upon thine head and upon thy beard, then take balances to weigh and divide the hair. Thou shalt burn with fire a third part in the midst of the city, that is, this little clay tablet, when the day of the siege are fulfilled, thou shalt take a third part, smite it round about, and a third part, you'll scatter it, and then you'll take a little of it, and you'll bind it up in his skirts. Now, what was the meaning of that? It looks like we've got a commercial here for an electric razor. Only there wasn't an electric razor then. He was to shave his head, his beard. Now, that was unusual for a priest to do, you see. This man's a priest, but now he's to do it. He divides the hair into three parts. And I imagine the people all gathered around. He's shaving outside there, and all the people come around to watch, and he takes one-third of the hair, he puts it inside the city. Well, that third are going to be besieged inside the city, and they're going to be burned with fire. That is exactly what happened to them. Another third of them, he is to take it and smite it. He is to really work it over. Well, that will happen to those that live through the siege, and then the other third are to be scattered and that was the group that scattered out. Jeremiah went with some of them that went down into Egypt. And then there is a small remnant. They're God's people. And that remnant will return to the city. Now, that was the way he got the message over to the people. And he makes it clear here in verse 12 that that's the meaning. Verse 12 now of chapter 5. A third part of these shall die with the pestilence, with famine, Shall they be consumed in the midst of thee? A third part shall fall by the sword round about thee, and I will scatter a third part into all the winds, and I'll draw out a sword after them. Now, verse 17, the last verse, chapter 5. So will I send upon you famine and evil beasts, and they shall bereave thee, and pestilence and blood shall pass through thee, and I will bring the sword upon thee. I, the Lord, have spoken." 
Now, friends, the judgment that came upon those people at the destruction of Jerusalem and the suffering that this group went through should have been a warning to them. It ought to be to us today, but it's so far removed from us. To begin with, very few people know about it. They are not acquainted with the Word of God. That, my friend, again causes me to say the greatest sin of Christians today is their ignorance of the Word of God. Now, God gave this to be a warning, not only to those people, but all Scripture is for us, and it has a message for us today. My friend, when the judgment of God begins, it's going to be too late then to make your decision. Today, if you'll hear his voice, now is the time. Now is the day of salvation. You talk about the now generation. The now generation are those that have accepted God's salvation and have not postponed it. What a message that we have here in this particular section.